So I'm here this morning because I want to appeal to you to be united. Now you might think to yourself, "Uh uh-oh, is there a problem? If he's appealing to us to be united, is, is there division within the church? Well, in the church at Corinth, yes, big time. How about the church at Winchester Baptist? Right now, as far as I can tell, no. Praise the Lord. But that's one of the reasons that we've chosen to study 1 Corinthians. Because this letter deals with common problems that occur within churches. And and while division may not be a problem for us now, friends, we will likely face it severe temptations in this area in the future. And so we want to talk about the problem of division while we're experiencing the peace of unity. That'd be a good thing to do, wouldn't it? So in our sermon text, Paul appeals to the Corinthian church to be united precisely because they were divided. And so what we're going to see in this text is the problem of division, the appeal for unity, and the basis of that unity. And as we study this text this morning, my friends, my prayer is that our church will be united in Christ and that we will let nothing divide us. Nothing. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is God's word to us. So, first, I want us to take a look at the problem of division. That's not where Paul starts. He starts with the appeal to unity, but I want to start setting the stage 
for us to understand the problem of division in verse 11 and 12 first. So look at your Bibles there in 11 and 12. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So we get the sense that there's a serious problem in the church at Corinth. Paul received a report from Chloe's people, likely a wealthy business woman in Corinth whose employees were on a a traveling business trip in Ephesus and told Paul about this particular problem in the church, probably lots of the problems that were going on there. And in verse 10, I want you to notice that Paul calls it division. Do you see that in verse 10? That there be no divisions among you. In other words, there are divisions among you. This is the word for schism, which in the original language means to split or to tear. Like tearing a garment. This same word is is used um, when the soldiers tore the garment of Jesus apart and then gave it out. It, it was it was used of the curtain that was torn in two from top to bottom in the temple. Thistleton, our commentator for this series, says that this is a division within the social fabric of the community. Isn't that good? Well, it's bad, actually, right? But it's, it's, it's a good way to put it. We can see that this church is being torn apart. And Paul, the tent maker, is grabbing this, right? He would be very familiar with his materials being torn apart. He says, I don't want this church to be torn apart. We've all heard of church splits, haven't we? Have you ever been part of one? I hope not, but so many of us have. It's a grievous problem. So what divided the church at Corinth? Specifically, what divided the church at Corinth? I I just want to suggest that it's going to be worth our time this morning uh, here at the very beginning of what will be three chapters where Paul deals with this. He deals with the same subject in chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. So four full chapters of dealing with this issue and giving all kinds of aspects and nuances of it. It's going to be worth our time to identify from the text what specifically divided the church at Corinth because it's going to make application to our church more faithful. In other words, we want to get this right. We don't just want to hear the words, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, and then make that mean whatever we want it to mean. We want to know what was going on there and then so that we can apply it to us correctly here and now with while avoiding improper Applications. So whatever these divisions were, we want to see them in these four chapters. And I'm just going to give you a really brief overview. You can write these things down as I kind of blow through them. But in verse 10 and 11, whatever these divisions were, the division is within one local church. That's really important. We're not talking about 
churches fighting against each other. We should be careful applying this to denominations because this was in one local church, not between churches. Look in verse 10. He says that there are divisions among you. There is quarreling, verse 11, among you, my brothers. So this is not between Christians and non-Christians over issues. This is a family issue, and it's within one local church. Verse 10 also tells us that the issue did not involve anything wrong. This was not over an issue that was a right and wrong issue because Paul never criticized nor supported any one of the four groups, but simply called everyone to forget their differences and be united. If this would have been a right or wrong issue, he would have addressed the specific issue. The issue is not what they're arguing about. It's the fact that they're arguing. It's the division itself. In verse 11, the division involved quarrels, which indicates that they were in verbal confrontation with one another. There's quarreling among you. Verse 12, whatever this division is, the division had to do with loyalty to human leaders. Look at verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, Apollos, Cephas, who is Peter, and I follow Christ. So the church had divided themselves by their loyalties to different human teachers. Now remember, Paul never says, I'm right, Apollos is wrong. All the teachers are good teachers. It's the fact that they are being loyal to teachers that is the issue. So when he says, I follow, he means uh, it's sort of maybe like a a campaign slogan, like, I'm for so-and-so, or I'm an X person, or I belong to this one. Shows their allegiance, their loyalty. The Paul group, that would be natural. I mean, you're there in Corinth. Paul was the church planter. He was the one who who brought the gospel to them, got to start the church. So it'd be natural for you to be part of the I'm of Paul crowd, right? Uh, Apollos is quite natural as well because he was the second guy to come along. Paul says in chapter 3, I planted Apollos watered. He was an eloquent and competent man in teaching the scriptures who followed Paul. So there was a group who claimed allegiance to him. And then there was a a Cephas group, a, a Peter group. Now, we actually have no evidence that Peter ever visited Corinth. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but there's no evidence that tells us. So what most speculate is that this might have been converts to Christianity, Jews who had come from other parts of the world where Peter had ministered and had moved to Corinth, which was becoming a, a uh, business hub of Greece. You remember it? It took over from Athens in its significance. 
And then there's this final group. I follow Christ. Well, while you're following Paul and you're following Apollos and you're following Peter, these are probably the ultra-spiritual crowd that rather than highly esteeming human leaders, actually disregard spiritual leaders completely. You know, the, the good independence among us. Chapter 2 and chapter 3, whatever these loyalties were, the loyalty to the teacher was an attempt to gain spiritual wisdom. Look in chapter 2, and you'll see at the very beginning a discussion on spiritual wisdom. Paul explains where spiritual wisdom comes from, and he explains that it comes from the Holy Spirit through faithful teachers. So they were claiming loyalty to these human teachers because they wanted to gain spiritual wisdom. And then it flows into chapter 3. Look how he opens chapter 3. Whatever these divisions were, the loyalty to these teachers was an attempt to be spiritual people. Chapter 3, verse 1. I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So the Corinthians wanted to be spiritual people and get spiritual wisdom. And they were claiming that they were getting the best spiritual wisdom from Paul or Apollos or Peter or forget all those guys. I just get my wisdom from Christ. In chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, remember just doing an overview here to try to determine what it was that was going on specifically there. Chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. The loyalty to the teacher was creating jealousy and strife between the Christians in Corinth. Look at verse 3. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Drop down to chapter 3, verse 21, and we'll see that whatever this division was, the Christians were boasting in their particular teacher. Boasting in. What does that mean? Just bragging on? No, the word boast means that they were trusting their teacher or that they were crediting their teacher for giving them the spiritual wisdom and spiritual maturity that only Christ can give. So look at verse 21. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul, Apollos, Sipho, or the world, life, death, or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. And he goes, he goes on and he's He's telling them that they're already kings because of what Christ has done for them. What are they going to get from human men? You can't boast in a human teacher for giving you only what God can give you. And then finally, the chapter 4 teaches us that whatever these divisions were, the Christians are acting out of sinful pride. 
by favoring one teacher over another. Look at chapter 4, verse 6, speaking of himself and Apollos. You just see that. See, he didn't leave this topic in chapter 1. He's mentioned it in each one of the chapters now. He's dealing with this, chapter 1 through 4. It's such a huge issue. Chapter 4, verse 6, speaking of himself and Apollos, he says that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. So Paul doesn't say anything about himself, Apollos, or Cephas. He just says the problem is that you all are being puffed up in pride about your allegiances and your loyalties to these human teachers. So the bottom line, the division in the Corinthian church was within one church, not between churches or denominations. It was not a theological issue. Rather, it was a sinful power struggle between four groups who have claimed a higher spiritual status and have more spiritual wisdom because they have followed one of these esteemed spiritual leaders. And this makes sense, doesn't it? We remember that Corinth was a competitive, status-seeking culture where rank mattered. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Plutarch, a Greek philosopher, very near Corinth. And within 50 years of Paul's writing of this letter, so he was contemporary of that time, Plutarch observed that just as young ivy twines, pardon me, young ivy twines itself around a strong tree to gain height, so an obscure person will seek a connection with a person of reputation to be, quote, under the shelter of his power and grow great with him. That's what the Corinthians were doing. They were aligning themselves with Paul and Peter and Apollos to gain spiritual reputation, wisdom, and rank. Now look, we often blame celebrity pastors for creating a cult of personality, don't we? Sometimes it's true. I mean, if the shoe fits, wear it. But that's not the situation here. Paul doesn't blame anyone here. In fact, in verse 14 through 17, he says... You can't say this about me because my entire ministry is about promoting Christ and making sure that no one can say, I am of Paul. These are the people who are putting unhelpful alliances to these spiritual leaders. So now that we've identified specifically what's going on in this text, I guess the question is, how do we apply that to our church? Well, uh, just let me suggest too, specifically, friends, we've got to, we've got to consider our loyalties to spiritual leaders. We've got to consider that. Was, was it just them? Or is it us too? 
do we find ourselves lining up into groups that say, I'm of MacArthur, I'm a Sproul person, I follow Piper, or I don't care about those guys, I only follow Christ. Is it possible that just like political partisanship, we line up or under our favorite spiritual leaders and judge ourselves more spiritual than others because of that? I listen to Alistair Begg, Vody Bauckham, David Jeremiah, Paul Washer. Now, if you're really going to be spiritual, you got to listen to Tim Keller or etc., etc. Listen, friends, it's one thing to appreciate the teaching of a spiritual leader, and it's quite another thing to align yourself with them. And it's even quite another level of sinfulness to judge yourself more spiritual because of him and others around you less spiritual because they listen to so-and-so. Now remember, we're not talking about true and false doctrine here. We're talking about Peter, Apollos, Paul, and Jesus. Same team. Loyalty to a teacher that sets us at odds with one another tears apart the body of Christ. Quarreling over who's more spiritual or who has more spiritual wisdom proves that we're neither spiritual nor wise. Yeah, we need to make a specific application here to our own hearts and our own church, don't we? But more generally, I think we need to ask ourselves the question, what divides our church? Are there cracks forming? Would those who are relatively new and have just begun to spend some time with us, would they sense distinct groups in which people are either in and out, in or out here in our church? Ask them sometime. Are there power struggles here in our church? Is there status seeking here? And before you look around and go, oh, yeah. Go ahead, flip the camera around, and take a selfie. Church, are we divided? Well, that's the problem of division. Now, Paul appeals for unity. What a strong appeal for unity he makes. Verse 10, he knows about this division, so he starts by appealing for unity. Verse 10, I appeal to you 
brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Did you hear my pauses? Guys, as you've been taught to read God's word, would you have made those pauses? Would you have seen seven different emphases there? What does it look like for a church to be united? Paul gives us seven pictures. Number one, he says, I appeal to you. What's the next word? Brothers. He appeals to the brotherhood of the church. You know what it looks like for a church to be united? It looks like being members of the same family. Number two. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He appeals to the Lordship of Christ. Just as you love Jesus, just as you serve Jesus, love your brothers, serve your brothers. You know what it looks like for a church to be united? Number two, it looks like serving the same Lord. Number three, that all of you agree. That all of you agree. The word agree literally means to say the same thing. That all of you say the same thing. Well, here they were saying different things. I am of so-and-so, right? So what does Paul want them to do? He wants them to stop taking sides against each other and take the same side. What does it look like for a church to be united? It means that we all take the same side. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Number four. Look at the the fourth phrase. That there be no divisions among you. There's that word schism. Rip or tear in the fabric. What does it look like for a church to be united? It looks like allowing nothing to tear us apart. Nothing. You sense something starting to tear us apart? You don't let it tear us apart. You sense division in your own heart, in your own attitude towards somebody else? You say no. No division here. It looks like allowing nothing to tear us apart, number four. Look at the fifth phrase. That you be united. This is a beautiful word. This word unity, it means to be fit together like the parts of a body. It means to be knit together like a cloth. So just as the word division is the rip or the tear, the unity is being knit together. So the fifth picture that Paul gives us of what it looks like for a church to be united is it looks like being knit together, having as we trust been brought by divine grace to this church. Together we make these promises. We've been knit 
together in made part of the same body. Number six, have the same mind. Well, we all have different brains. That's good for you. (laughs) Because if you had mine, you'd be like, I just would like to get rid of this. But we're supposed to what? We're supposed to think the same. We're supposed to have the same mindset. So it looks like, what does it look like to have unity? It has the same mindset. And if not about this particular issue, about one another. And then the last one, number seven. Having the same mind and the same judgment. The same judgment. It means ultimately making the same determination, the same decision. So what does it look like for a church to be united? We're members of the same family. We have the same Lord. Paul says, I appeal to you, all of you, to to take the same side and don't let anything tear you apart because you've been knit together. So have the same mind and have the same will or determination toward each other. But about what? Specifically. With so many different people, So many different opinions in the church. What is it that really unites us? What is the basis for our unity? Paul gives us that in chapter, in verse 13 through 17, the basis. So not only do we see the problem of division and the appeal, strong sevenfold appeal to unity, but now he tells us what it is that we're united around. And he does it sort of in a back door approach. What's the basis of our unity, friends? Paul uses a a rhetorical device called the reduction to absurdity. Paul asks three questions in verse 13 that demonstrates the absurdity of dividing our loyalties over human teachers and emphasizes where our unity is. So notice in these three questions that he's showing how absurd human leadership is, but how central and significant the person, the work, and the name of Jesus Christ is. Because that is the basis of our unity. The person of Christ the work of Christ, and the name of Christ. Look at these three questions. Verse 13. So each one of you says, I am of Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Question number one. Is Christ divided? What an absurd notion. Christ can't be divided. He's one person. The word division here is different than the word schism up here. The word, is Christ divided, is to cut up. And it's used whenever you're divvying out inheritances. Or like when you were a kid and you got candy and you divvied out the candy. 
What did you do? Divide up Christ so that each one of you can have your own personal Christ? Is that what you've done, church? So we could reword it and say this. Could could it be that Christ has been cut up and apportioned out in such a way as to give each group their very own Christ? No, it's absurd. But the opposite of that is true. We are united in the person of Jesus, the one singular supreme person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the same. That's the basis of our unity. Question number two. Was Paul crucified for you? Okay, those of you who say, I follow Paul. Was Paul crucified for you? This emphasizes the work of Christ, doesn't it? And the question anticipates the emphatic, no, of course not. Because that's an absurd notion. Surely Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Of course not. You know why? Because no other person can fulfill Isaiah 53. No other human can bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. No other sinner can be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The death of no son of Adam can ever bring us back to peace with God again. Is Paul crucified for you? Only Jesus. Only Jesus can be crucified and was crucified for us. Listen, friend, your favorite apostle or your favorite celebrity pastor may have radically impacted your faith, but he's not the savior of the church. He's just a sinner just like the rest of us. We don't unite around him. We unite around his savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Absurd question number three. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So baptism in the name of someone is identification with them and it symbolizes being united with them. Identified with them and united. You're immersed into this person. Are you identified with Paul and immersed in with Paul? Answer, for those four groups, 25% of them were. It's a ridiculous notion that they would align themselves with the one who baptized them rather than the one into whom they were baptized. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. 
the person, the work, and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul makes a defense. He gives a personal defense. But I'm sure he's speaking on behalf of Apollos and Peter. Look at his defense there in 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Now, is it like, oh yeah, I forgot. Or since they didn't have erasers, he had already written Crispus and Gaius, so he couldn't go back, so he's now admitting to somebody else that he just remembered. No, 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 no. The household of Stephanus was not in Corinth. They were in the county, the the region of Achaia, which is the the region, the the whole bottom portion of uh, uh, Greece where Corinth is a city, the household of Stephanus, they probably knew well. He's a, he's a big deal and shows up several times in the scriptures. So he says, I did baptize the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Four. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, not with manipulative words. Not with a performance like you guys in Corinth really want. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We're going to deal with 14 through 17 next week and we're going to ask this question. Why didn't Paul baptize his converts? An interesting study. You think about that and come back next week. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul says, no. No, you weren't. And he says, I do everything in my power, in my ministry, to point people to Jesus, period. The person, the work, and the name of Jesus Christ is what we all unite around. In this church and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this text is not just about the problem of division at Corinth, is it? It's an appeal to our church to be united. So I want to end by asking the question, how do we promote unity? How do we protect that the, the sweet unity that the Lord has given us for the first 10 years How do we promote and protect unity within our church? And I'm only going to give you two suggestions, and I I dare say you can line up every other one under these two. Number one, we repent of anything that divides us. Anything that divides us within this church. See, the reality is this. Within the church... Differences are unavoidable. Look around the room. Have a conversation. Differences are unavoidable. Diversity is desirable. But division is destructive. So we're going to be different. We want to be diverse, but we must avoid division within those differences and within that diversity. 
And the New Testament calls for unity and love and peace in the body of Christ over and over and over again because it is so important. Division is never a good thing, friends. Listen to this statement. Division even over good things is a bad thing. That's what this text is teaching us. These teachers are good, but dividing over good teachers is bad. As we go through 1 Corinthians, we're going to find out that desiring spiritual maturity is good. But division over who's more spiritual is bad. But it also comes natural to sinners, doesn't it? Having spiritual gifts is a good thing. But ranking which gifts are better than others, it's bad. Division over even good things is a bad thing. And we have got to repent of anything that divides us. Number two. How do we promote and protect unity within our church? Number two, we unite around the person, the work, and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We keep Him central in all of our thinking. Especially when differences arise. Friends, division comes when we align ourselves under anyone other than Jesus Christ. Division comes when we rank ourselves within the body of Christ above each other. Division comes when we focus on our differences instead of what we have in common. So why are the Anglicans like that and the Presbyterians like that? And why are the, why are the Baptists doing this? And what about those people at Grace Brethren? What's a brethren anyway? I hear us praying for Davy Ermold in the Grace Brethren Church. Are they different? Yeah. But you know why we pray for them? Because they get Jesus right. The person, the work, the name of Jesus. So unity comes when we remind ourselves that we have been knit together as part of the body of Christ here locally and the body of Christ globally under the lordship of Christ as brothers in Christ. And so Paul said to the church at Philippi, may I hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And that's what we want here in this church, standing side by side, locked arm in arm together for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the promises that we make. Every member here. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know why we work for it? 
because division comes so easily. We've got to work. You know why we pray for it? Because unity is a blessing and grace of God that requires the Spirit of God to give in our church and in our hearts. So Winchester Baptist Church, as we move into this next decade together, let's work for, pray for, even fight for unity. And let's not let anything tear us apart. For the gospel and the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we find ourselves at your feet, cleansed by your blood, clothed in your righteousness, alive because of your resurrection, and no other. We thank you for the differences among us and among your greater church. We praise you for the diversity. But we pray together right now that you would protect us from division and that you would set every member on mission to work for and pray for unity in this body. And I pray that any one of us, when we sense division in our own hearts, we would combat it by your grace, for your glory in this church. And I pray that this church would find ourselves locked arm in arms with other gospel churches in this city, in this region, and in this world so that you would be glorified and more disciples would glorify you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.